where I find that most realtors go wrong is they don't pull together any data. And then when value falls short on that back end, they're trying to figure out why it happened. And it's at that point, it's too late. It's also important to understand that because of the mass appraisal umbrella, oftentimes there's mistakes and errors. Hi, you're excited you're moving in and then you get slapped in the face. Welcome to the Urban Connect podcast. I'm Jennifer Arshampo, the broker owner of Urban Provision Realtors, and I'm delighted you're turning in today. If you're here, chances are your prospective buyer, seller, or homeowner searching for clarity on the ever-changing real estate landscape here in Texas, and you've come to the right place. In each episode, I discuss a myriad of topics, providing you with the knowledge and tools to navigate the complex realm of real estate, from insider tips on how to prepare your home for a successful sale, to an in-depth analysis of the most recent market developments and everything in between. So rest assured, I've got you covered. Unwind, get comfortable and prepare to upgrade your real estate knowledge with the Urban Connect podcast. So have you ever contemplated the reason behind the contrasting prices at which two apparently identical houses when they're listed for sale? Well, the answer just does not lie in chance. It's about the countless variables that can shape a property's value. In today's episode with my esteemed guest, I will dissect these factors, shed light on why location, condition, and market trends are not mere buzzwords in the real estate world. They are very pillars of determining market or property value. Whether you're a seasoned investor, a first-time homebuyer, or simply someone with a curious mind about the forces that sway property values, This episode is your gateway to a wealth of knowledge. By the end of the episode, you'll have a deep understanding of how professionals assess property values, the critical factors that sway a property's worth, and how you can wield this knowledge to make shrewd decisions in a dynamic real estate market. Speaking of my esteemed guest, before I dive into this episode, I'm compelled to highlight the depth and breadth of knowledge she brings to our discussion. Jesse Runkle, a native of the Washington, D.C. metro area, holds a Bachelor of Science degree in business administration with specialization in real estate and urban analysis from Ohio State University. Her journey in the world of real estate appraisal began in 1981 when she became a licensed appraiser, right when licensing laws were first introduced. She embarked on a career as a staffed appraiser for Real Estate Appraisal Services, Inc., a subsidiary of Charter One Bank located in Ohio. Over her 15-year tenure, Jessie took various roles, including field appraiser, review appraiser, as just two of those um, roles that she took on. She also played a pivotal role in educating local lenders about the intricacies of the appraisal process. When Charter One Bank was acquired by RBS, which is Citizens Bank, Jessie decided to take her expertise to new heights, and in 2007, she earned the prestigious Senior Residential Appraisal designation from the Appraisal Institute. During her tenure, she became a VA authorized appraiser and served as the secretary for the local chapter of the Appraisal Institute. In 2012, Jessie was recruited to lead an appraisal team at the appraisal shop in Austin, Texas. She played a vital role in transforming the firm into the largest residential appraisal firm in the Austin Central Texas region. Recognizing the need to expand her services beyond their local footprint, in late 2019, she founded iAppraisal, 
iAppraisal is a state-licensed boutique appraisal management company and commonly referred to as an AMC in the real estate world based in Austin, Texas, that covers the entire state of Texas with Jesse currently serving as its president. iAppraisal has cultivated a panel of 700 appraisers through organic recommendations and referrals, driven by personal experiences and endorsements from various industry participants. They actively engage with the real estate community by sponsoring continuing education or commonly known as CE classes and lunch and learn sessions, earning a stellar reputation among agents, brokers, and builders that is second to none. So now that you can understand why I invited Jesse to be my guest today on this episode of Urban Connect, welcome, Jesse. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Hi, Jennifer, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be on the podcast and, and to share my knowledge with your audience and, and hopefully educate and everyone will be I'm able glad to you're on when they say there's different levels of understanding uh, value. When you're a typical appraiser that just been the appraiser, you, you've been behind the scenes. You see what happens in multiple markets, not just one market, right? So, I mean, I feel like we have a lot of information to unpack here. Um, so let's get started. And what I like to do on most of my episodes is kind of get started high level, right? So the average person who's not an appraiser, not a realtor, not someone in the mortgage industry, who's navigating a real estate transaction and can really understand property appraisal. How does property appraisal as you're doing through, you know, I, through I appraisal, your 700 or so appraisers that are going out and, and filling those orders for mortgage orders or those appraisers, you know, how are, how are they appraising differently from property tax appraisal or assessment? Because I think that that gets, you know, that's it's a misunderstood in our industry. That's a great point and a, and a wonderful place to start. Property tax appraisal and the, the county assessors, that's really falls under the category of mass appraisal. And they have formulas and algorithms and, and all types of behind the scenes uh, methodology for how they uh, come to their assessed value. And believe me, I do not pretend to know all of the ins and outs of their process. They are mass appraisers going out and doing a mass number of homes at once. They obviously are not going inside homes and they are not drilling down to the specific level of your individual property. So that's the largest distinction is it's a mass appraisal using formulas you know, obviously not drilling down to the specific subject property, which is what uh, my appraisers and myself and are doing. My We're going out to your property sheer specifically time that it takes to do drilling your down on that versus property. the time that it takes to do in a, the, the assessed appraiser for county purposes. And the money that goes into that, like the county only has like $50 to put into one appraiser for my house. But if you came to my house, I mean, I'm going to pay you a lot more than 50 bucks to do your work.
Exactly. And and they're limited. They're not going inside your home. Um, obviously, they have technology to understand if a permit has been pulled, maybe you added a family room or a swimming pool. Um, they obviously have drones. They can take a look at the exterior, but they're not nuanced enough to go inside your home to understand, hey, this is a wonderful floor plan. It's an open space or the reverse of that. This is wow. This is challenging. You know, it's old school boxy. Um, there's a step down in the living room that's causing a, a little bit of, of resistance in the market. The decor is very custom. Um, all of those things. Uh, you know, what was the level of, of the quality of materials of the updating and renovations? That's that's beyond the capability of the county yes. assessor. I mean, because you know, I've had clients say, why a, does the appraisal, really why, can, why am I selling my house for one and I'm taxed for another or vice versa? And it, it, you just hit the nail on the head because it's not the same approach. Yeah. It's also important to understand that because of the mass appraisal uh, umbrella and all what that encompasses, oftentimes there's mistakes and errors. Uh, if if you really dig in, I encourage everyone listening to go into the, the county assessor website and take a look and see if that information makes sense to them. You're built to their home, the square footage of the home, does that make sense? Oftentimes we'll find errors in square footage as it's reported. Um, those kinds of things. Um, so it's, uh, which can really affect your, your taxable value as well. Sometimes appraisers will pull that error out and then allow the homeowner to go and, and have a tax reduction because of an error that that's on the county assessor website. So it's not, you know, they don't go into zoning, you know, there's just so many nuances and, 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 uh, you know, variables involved in, writing an appraisal for a federally regulated transaction as mortgage lending is just a piece, the, right. the CAD is a now, piece can you of highlight some of the challenges that me, you face um, involving, you know, appraising a property just at the high level. Well, it, it is important if we're dealing with an appraisal where the purpose of the appraisal is to to write it for mortgage lending purposes involving a purchase, a, a purchase transaction. Um, it's super important for if there are agents involved on either side to be involved in that process because the appraiser is held to certain standards and practices, such as reporting not only if a home is upgraded or renovated, but timing as well. It's a, it's a pulled mind field by Fannie Mae, where they are not only asking the appraiser to report, has this home been updated, but was it done within the last year? Was it five to 10 years? Was it 10 years plus? That's information that is part of the appraiser's due diligence in writing a, uh, uh, an appraisal that's on a Fannie Mae form. It's a federally regulated transaction, and, and appraisers are held to standards to answer those questions as accurately as they possibly can. And in order to do that, oftentimes, 
you need the realtor involvement. The seller may not be present. You know, the realtor is the point of contact. And it's super important that they're very, very cooperative and that in goes sharing into that information my next question to for the you best of their ability. That realtor involvement. In order for the appraiser to do their I've job. I've always understood it to be a help to the appraiser. But I guess it could also be a hindrance. So can you explain when it's helpful and when it's the hindrance to your process? It, it's super helpful when the, when the realtors involved, the agents can stick to actual data and facts. So going back to my prior point, please let the appraiser know, yes, they did a down to the stud renovation in the kitchen in 2019. And here's all that was replaced. And if you want to throw in what the budget was for that, great. And, uh, you know, the roof is 10 years old, but they have a new HVAC system. Um, whereas the properties that you may pull or that I pulled in my CMA perhaps don't have that same level of updating renovation replacement. That is super helpful. It becomes a hindrance when emotions and sort of emotional opinions are brought in. Um, it's, it's important to just stick to the factual data and also share with the appraiser, you know, what you're experiencing market resistance or market, you know, what the mark typical market buyer is loving to see. That's also great feedback. And so it's just about sticking to the facts and sticking to data. And then some anecdotal here and there having to do with, hey, I'm noticing that in my Submarket because every market's I've different. I've always found it helpful local. to prepare my own. This is what my I call market analysis for, for, for the people very, very listening. Helpful. No, I'm not preparing a value. I'm not doing an appraiser because I'm not an appraiser. I'm not an appraiser. I'm not licensed, right? I'm a licensed realtor, so I'm doing a market analysis. So when I'm talking to my my appraiser, here's my market analysis. This is what I've pulled together. Here are all my information, and I'm passing that along to them at the time that we're meeting at the property when they're doing their report. Ask them if they have any questions about anything that's going to be in their report and inviting them to call me back later if there's any questions when they're before they, you know, hit send and send that report back to the to the AMC. Where I find that most realtors go wrong is they don't pull together any data. They don't meet the appraiser. They said, OK, here's a lockbox. Go in. And then when, a, you know, value falls short on that back end. They're trying to figure out why it happened. And it's at that point, it's too late. Yes. And to your point, and, and I'm not saying that the, the listing agent or the buyer agent would need to meet the appraiser at the property. It's not necessary. They, you know, there's a certain component of their job that they really need to think and analyze as they're walking through the property. And sometimes that's best if they don't have someone you know, in their ear during that process so that they get distracted. But but really going back to old school, if you want to physically leave something at the property, leave the old school packet. Here's my top three sales that I used in my CMA and why. Let us know. You know, I used this one because it had the same level of updating. This was in the same school district. This had a similar five bedroom, four bath that was difficult to locate and leave that 
on the kitchen counter, on the dining room table, and let the appraiser know, hey, I left you a packet of information. If you're not able to do that, then just replying to an email or a reach out when the appraiser calls to schedule, writing them back and saying, hey, here's a copy of the survey. And by the way, I had, you know, another offer or two. And let me tell you about that. Um, And here is my CMA and send it as an attachment, because not only is it about the back end, but when the appraiser goes out to do their inspection, they're looking at the entire neighborhood. So they're not only looking at the subject property, they're going to go buy those comparable sales at the same time. And so if you're proactive and you provide that data up front, it gives them the ability to view everything in the neighborhood and really get a good handle on the subject and the comparable sales that were provided. Now I've had, and I I want to beat this to death because I think that it's not my job to tell an appraiser how to do their job, but you, you know, um, your experience that there's appraisers that traditionally work a market and that's all they pick. That's all the orders they pick up. Right. And then there's, there's appraisers that will work in a different marketplace. Let's say San Antonio, Houston, and you'll find them in Austin appraising. Right. So generally that's in my opinion, not the confident thing to do because that's not what they're accustomed to do on a daily basis. I wouldn't do that in real estate. Um, But when I say that, when either when that happens, I, I add, and I'm, I'm saying this for a consumer because you want to be asking your realtor, what are you doing? What conversations are you having with the appraiser and what data are you giving them? Now, it's common and, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's common that we're trying to find the comparable data inside a neighborhood within a f- section, right? We'll talk about that later, but there's times that can't happen. Inventory is lower. So, at that point, I need to let that appraiser know what other neighborhoods are comparable in my buyer's eyes. Because just because it's across the highway or next door doesn't mean that it's going to be apples to apples comparison. Maybe they need to jump over in a different neighborhood to go to get some data because it's not similar in quality. And maybe it looks almost similar in price, or maybe it's just a little bit lower in price. But I find that probably one of the biggest things I put in my packet is let them know where, where these buyers are coming from also. So they're, they're pulling their comps from those areas. And I think to your point that there's actually a lot to unpack with what you just said. So I think an important term for realtors to understand and when they're communicating with appraisers is substituted. I took my buyer to these three other properties and my buyers considered them to be substitutive properties. And they're substitutive for particular reasons. And so I will say that when you have to cross a major highway, you really don't wanna do that most often because on the back end, one of the appraisers many masters, if you will, those that are scrutinizing their report are underwriters. And Fannie Mae collateral underwriter, which is an artificial intelligence uh, tool, and that will automatically flag most often. And so there has, I'm not saying you can't do it, but there has to be a reason. Perhaps absolutely. And so just communicate that because it's not that it hasn't happened. But it's the reason why you're skipping over all these other sales that are right in your PUD or in your neighborhood. 
to go over here to pull this sale? Is it because you have the largest lot in the neighborhood? You're the only one with a downtown view. You're the only one with a swimming pool. You're the only one with a guest house. Those types of reasons. And always know that even though the appraiser will use those sales as, as substituted properties to bracket for those certain features that have contributory value, they also have to account for where the subject is located. So there will be data pulled from the subject's immediate neighborhood. And then that is reconciled, right? You can't go and jump and just be over here for all of your sales data. You're, you're, you're skipping over proximate recent sales to go to a substitutive neighborhood for a specific reason. So make sure you're very clear as to why why you pulled that sale from outside of your immediate neighborhood. Now, I bring that up because I think back to, which you will probably nod your head, yes, back to 11 to 16 and then jump over to 2020, right, where we had a shortage of inventory. Back in 11 and 16, we had a lot of what we call pocket listings, nothing that entered the MLS. It was just sold out on the MLS with a sign. And that data didn't get collected. So there was a a shortage of inventory, not for us to pull from from buyers, but you on the back end for the appraisal side, which stinks at the end because the buyer at the end of the day is the one who loses out on not having that listing data public. Um, And then with the pandemic, they're just there were there were a lot of inflated sales, but there still weren't a lot of sales at a time, right? And I can recall one um, time when there were one or one or zero listings available in Circle C at one given time, right? So the state of the market now, we're slower, we're taking longer to sell, but as soon as interest rates decline, I think we could go back to that with the, the amount of buyers we have on the fence. And so, you know, if you do decide to sell, Put your house in the MLS, make sure the data is there because without data, this human being that I'm talking to today can't do her job or her, her appraisers can't do her their job, right? And it's gonna you're it's gonna suffer later. Yes, absolutely. And and honestly, you know, we saw a lot of trek contracts come in during the pandemic that may have just had representation on one side, that perhaps it was a buyer agent and there really was no listing agent. And so then the question becomes, is this really truly an arm's length market exposed transaction? And sometimes not really, we found. So it is super important to put the listing and and even if you're able to procure a buyer and you and you have a contract the really good agents in our market will then put that once it's pending or closed they will put it into the mls so it becomes a data piece you know part of that data set so when the appraiser is going and trying to view all of the sales activity and data points in a certain neighborhood they have access to that sale you know, there are situations where that's going to happen, but I don't know, you could speak to it obviously much better than me, but I have seen it where agents have put a, a transaction in the MLS and even put a little, you know, caveat there. This is for... For data purpose only. I think we learned our lesson back in 11 to 16 because there was a shortage of data and it wasn't because of shortage of, of cells. There were plenty of cells. It's just... Nobody wanted to put their data in MLS. So 
um, I, I think now that realtors are educating homeowners why we do what we do and why we, you know, it helps them all and there's no issues at the end. Yeah. And I wanted to back up real quickly. Part of what you had to say earlier when you were talking about appraisers coming out of other areas, I think you use the example of coming maybe from San Antonio up to Austin. When that happens, it's because there's a lack of control over the panel of appraisers that's doing the work. And you often find that when you get to these larger lenders. So it's important also for your audience to know both just homeowners and potential buyers and sellers out there in the market, as well as the agents, dealing with a local lender makes all the difference in the world. Uh, your process is much more intentional. There is control over the quality of the panel of appraisers. Are these appraisers with both a geographic skill set as well as a, a competency skill set for that particular assignment? The same appraiser that's doing the downtown condo in Austin maybe isn't going to be doing the manufactured home up in Gerald or Florence. And the way we work is we're very intentional that we know those skill sets. And that gets completely lost when you're dealing with these large lenders that use big national AMCs and they don't really have any intentionality. They don't have the relationships. And oftentimes that's where you find that appraiser is coming from San Antonio trying to appraise in Austin. It's not happening when you're dealing with your local lender. That has exactly when it's happened. It's, it's happened when it's been a national bank. It's, it's, I don't think it's ever happened when I've used a local um, lender because just like you said, they have aligned with someone who fits the mold of the way they do business and they want to know who on the back end is appraising. They don't want that. If that person's brand new, they don't want to learn it on the back end and doesn't know what they're doing. Because at the end of the day, it, it, any turbulence in a real estate transaction costs someone money. It could cost the lender money, the buyer money, the seller money, and they don't want that. So um, my experience with a, a large bank, I mean, sometimes this is not the experience, but 90 percent of the time it is. It is through a call center. There's no one local. Anytime you call in, you get a different person. You know, it's deadlines are missed. There's your number. They're not relational and they're not, and they're not accountable. And so there's so much more to it. Uh, you know, we talk about interest rates all the time, but there's just so many other variables that make up the circle of the transaction. And if it's not relational, I mean, think about it. Residential real estate is local local nuanced transaction and so to farm that out to some large lender where they're sitting in Chicago or California or wherever just makes no sense to me uh, it's important to keep it local and relational no it, it does and I tell clients that all the time so if you're listening and you've worked with me you've heard that before <laughs> it is very true uh, do you have anything else kind of in this segment that you want to add before we go on to appraisal guidelines and standardization? I don't think so. I think just with the with the realtors, the, the agents in the audience to really, you are gold when you are engaged, 
and cooperative and providing good data. There are times where I've heard an appraiser reach out to a realtor and they'll say, well, I don't want to do your job for you. Well, I'm not asking you to do my job for me. I, I would just like for you to share your expertise and knowledge on the ground in your market. You know, I can I can go down and do a $10 million Lake Austin waterfront. I can go do a manufactured home up in northern Williamson County and everything in between. But I'm not to the drill down level in your particular PUD or specific neighborhood to know of all the nuances and everything that's going on. That's what we need you to share with the appraiser. Right. Exactly. So I know this, that there are appraisal guidelines. I know that every appraiser is given a set of guidelines. There are also any any order. There's a more. There's also a lender di- directive on how far that they really want them to go, or or scale in or scale out or data like try go back so many months and you know, there's standards that you always do. But based on lender, they could have additional directives they give you too. Is that right? Well. The, the the directives that you're talking about really relate back to, to Fannie Mae. Those are, those are traditional Fannie Mae guidelines um, more than they are the specific lender. So Fannie Mae will not accept a report where you don't have at least three closed sales within the past 12 months. That would not be up to the lender um, unless... You know, you had, a, a, you know, something that's not a federally related transaction, right? If we were doing some kind of narrative report for us. So you're saying they're adding those directives based on loan type? Fan, if, the, if the report is written for Fannie Mae, so it's going on a 1004 single family report or a 1073 condo report or the 1025 multifamily form, those are Fannie Mae forms. And so they have to be written to Fannie Mae guidelines. And one of those hard and fast guidelines is there must be at least three closed sales within the last 12 months. Now, you can put six sales in. Maybe you've got your most awesome sale sold, you know, 13 months ago. It's not that that can't be in the report. It can be. It just has to go on a secondary market grid and the appraiser needs to explain, hey, this is actually really my best sale. And I've taken into account any changes in market during that time. So really what appraisers are held to are Fannie Mae guidelines uh, from a high level um, their underwriting, they have an uh, AI tool called Collateral Underwriter. And so this is really the most important thing for your agents in the audience to understand that Collateral Underwriter is an AI tool by Fannie Mae. And what it does is it knows time and distance, time and proximity. So this is why if you're working on a purchase transaction on Main Street, and 30 days ago, there was a sale two blocks over on Elm Street, but it was a bad sale for whatever reason for your transaction. It, it's coming in low. It's not supporting. Because the appraisal is going to be automatically run through collateral underwriter, it's going to flag that sale that was two blocks away and 30 days ago. And it's going to want to know 
why you didn't include it in the report as an appraiser. And so the appraiser is responsible for reporting all of that relevant data. Now they can acknowledge it and say, I realize that Elm Street closed 30 days ago, but this is why it's not a relevant sale. Either it was distressed, you know, C4, C5 in a really bad condition, um, whatever, but it has to be addressed. And so those are some of the guidelines and, and lender underwriters. So you have Fannie Mae running an automated collateral underwriter, and then you have the underwriter at your financial institution that's looking at that score. When collateral underwriter is done, it has a score rating of one to five, five being the most concerning. And so depending on the lender, where that score is cut off. Some lenders don't get too bothered if it's a three or less. Perhaps if you're out in Brenham, you know, uh, Hempstead areas, kind of semi-rural, they're willing to accept a four because they understand the data is, is not quite as intense and plentiful as it is in Austin proper. And so that's where the lender comes in, is how they're interpreting that score to determine whether or not they need to go back to the appraiser and say, how about these other sales and, and why did you not consider them? Um, so that's probably the most important high level guideline for agents involved in transactions to understand. And it goes back to chatting with the appraiser, being a partner, letting them know here's these sales and let me tell you about them and how they're either similar or different than my subject property. So there's those types of guidelines. The, the other guidelines that I think have been thrown around out there, which really are more like guardrails than hard and fast, um, you know, you, you, you often hear, well, you don't want to go more than one mile away. Well, that's so nuanced to the market. I, I wouldn't get all wrapped up in that. Just know that you can't be in a certain pod, let's say, and like we talked about earlier, ignore 10 sales right there and go two puds over to pick a sale that you like. There has to be a reason. Um, so going back in time, obviously, the more recent, the better. But you can go back to 12 months. It's also concerning when there's a large line item adjustment. So guardrail is probably maybe around 10%. So say you have a property that's selling for 300,000 and an appraiser is making a, you know, 75 or 100,000 dollar adjustment for a view or lot size or what have you. That raises the flag because that there's really something that's really dissimilar enough it is probably not a really relevant substitutive sale. So those would probably be your hard and fast guidelines as you're putting your CMA together. Um you can go back to 12 months, try not to have, you know, just one huge major adjustment. And then also um, the bracketing component, which is your $300,000 sale. Let's say it's 2,000 square feet. Don't just pull, you know, all $400,000 sales that are, you know, 2,400 square feet or vice versa pull a smaller square footage and then try to do some kind of dollar per square foot calculation. That, that's not going to be accepted by underwriters and it's not how we appraise real property. So when you're pulling your sales 
to provide to the appraiser, bracket. I've got a $275,000 sale, but hey, it was 400 square feet smaller. It didn't have a pool. It wasn't renovated. And then I've got an awesome, you know, $375,000 sale. And that had an outdoor kitchen and a pool and, you know, was larger. So that's what the underwriters want to see. They want to see that whatever contributory value you're attributing to that feature, living area, view, lot size, bath count, whatever you're applying downward adjustment has to be similarly applied going upwards. So it's, it's demonstrating that that's a reasonable market extracted adjustment to make. And you can't do that if you haven't done that on both sides, if you're adjusting everything up or everything down. That is why I tend to get my clients involved in the process when I'm trying to pull data to establish list price or even an an offer price if they know it, if they're buying and they know the neighborhood. I mean, most sellers have been in multiple homes in a neighborhood, right? They know which ones have the view. They know which ones look like themselves. They, you know, get clients, get involved with the process and, you know, help to make sure that there's not a problem on the back end. Because um, let's talk about the AMC for a second, because this is where you shine too, is, and I may say this wrong, so correct me, um, um, lender goes, um, uh, lender says, I need to make an order. They don't now, today, since 2013, they don't go to an appraisal company. They they go to an AMC. AMC then um, assigns or doles out orders and then the appraiser goes and does the order and goes back to the AMC. The AMC does a once over on it to make sure there's no errors, there's no issues, we're not going to have any big red flags. And then it goes to the mortgage company. The mortgage company then puts it through their underwriting once again. And then that's when you generally the buyer knows the value. Is it my understanding that Yes, we can catch some issues on the front end, talking to the appraiser on the front end. But I've also seen when it gets to the AMC, they're trying to find out how they can fix some things. And they sometimes need that realtor's help from the AMC side before they send it back to the, to the lender. Is that right? Well, the, the AMC is an is a appraisal management company that is licensed. And we are the compliant firewall between the lender and the appraiser. We are not we are not getting involved in the actual process of communication. No, that is strict. We encourage it. We direct our appraisers, hey, please reach out to the agents on both sides of this transaction and ask for data. It, the compliance of that is the appraiser speaking directly with the realtor, directly with the agent. The appraiser can speak directly with the builder if you're talking to production. That's right. And so what the AMC does, most importantly, is set a wonderful, competent panel of appraisers up for that particular lender. That's our most important function, because it all comes back to who's writing your appraisal. Are they competent? So we do that. And then when the appraiser has a question, they can ask us as the AMC, hey, I'm not understanding this acreage. The survey's not clear or it's there's you know some issues with 
um, when I'm going out to the property and, and you know, the roof is leaking or, or there are broken windows. We had that just recently with the big hailstorm in Round Rock where we've had to put our hand up and then communicate to the lender, hey, the appraiser's letting us know there's some busted out windows and some hail damage on the roof. Please go back to your agents involved. You may want to, you know, maybe do some renegotiating or discussing with what's going on with this property now. So we are a compliant firewall that offers that transparent communication to both the appraiser as well as the lender. We do not underwrite. It is not, I wouldn't pretend to begin to underwrite an appraisal. And that's why I asked the way I asked it, because I wanted to make sure to know that AMCs are the, I'm going to call it the metal person. They're neutral. They're Switzerland. We offer the compliance to the lenders, and that's what came out of Dodd-Frank, right? Now, there's still small lenders that manage their own appraiser panel because they don't have the bandwidth to, to bring an AMC on. So that still happens. But for the most part, they are dealing with an AMC because it's that offers that compliant firewall that federal law has mandated that they have. And that's a lot easier to maintain when you're dealing with an AMC than managing your own panel. You mentioned uh, construction and quality construction. I want to talk more about that when we get into value a little bit later, because I think that that goes a little bit more with then. Um, is there anything about standardization or guidelines that you think we missed? No, I really don't. I, I think now, let's talk about market conditions, because the influence on the market, like I said before, has a play in how uh, values are determined, right? So um, let's talk about market conditions and how you're determining market. Let's talk about the mo most recent market conditions. We had this crazy pandemic where people paying three, four, five hundred thousand dollars above list price in the central Texas area. You had some... some version of that in every market, but not to the extreme we had it here. Um, we also had it back in 2011-16, not as high, not as crazy, but, and then we go into this really sluggish time where homes don't sell for that. And then they, we re reheat the cycle like we did back in 2002 and 2001. So, Talk about how that plays into you getting data in a 12-month period. Are you pivoting more to a six-month um, window at that point because the market was radically different for the first half or the last half? Or are you just making those line-item adjustments? It, it really depends on your it, – it's so nuanced. It really depends on your particular property. So number one – your audience should understand that the appraisers are not setting value. They're interpreting the data. The agents out there in the buyers and sellers that are coming to an agreement on a contract price are the ones setting what the data points are. It's up to the appraiser to look at those data points and best interpret them. And you have outliers, right? We all know about you know, during the height of the pandemic, when you'd have a property selling for 500000 above list, and maybe there was only a buyer agent involved, okay, that may be an outlier, right? So it's up to the appraiser to understand the data set. The, the gist of, I think, of what you're asking in terms of how far back time-wise, I think what's going on now because we all know, and we're, we're quickly getting to a point where I think the market has 
pretty well corrected and stabilized. We're into October. So if we're looking October 22 to October 23, that's a different that's a different view than when we were looking March of 22 to March of 23, because things hadn't quite calmed back down yet. And so it's important to absolutely use the most recent data that you can. I think we have a little more bandwidth now because of the stabilization that has occurred. Again, it's nuanced to your market, but it's really the same principle that was applied when the pandemic craziness first took off. I mean, I'm sure you can remember when we first started getting into these extreme, this is selling way over list, you know, and at, for a certain short period of time, those sales were pending. And so it was the appraiser having to go in the other direction to say, hey, this is what's happening in my market right now. And to the point where because we provide such boutique service, we would go back to the lender and let them know, hey, the appraiser's telling us that this house down the street is going to close in 10 days. Do you want to pause and allow this to close so that it can be considered in the report? So it's the same principle, just going in two different directions. Absolutely. So it's about understanding that nuance, that submarket, what's going on. Um, I still do some VA appraisal work uh, sporadically, and I was up in Gerald in doing new production built construction. That's been very stable for most of this year. And then I'm starting to find out that a lot of these production builders are discounting pricing starting as early as mid-September to clear your end inventory that used to not start till typically late October, early November, right? So again, it's important to understand the nuance of your market and what's going on with the data set. Well, then that's why I believe it's a, it's a very good idea to hire a realtor who knows the market you're selling in and also buying in. It's not on just one, it's not one-sided because as a buyer's agent, I'm doing my same market analysis when you're buying that I'm doing when you're selling because I know that your lender, if you're doing a loan, is going to have an appraisal on the back end. And I don't want anything to happen at that 11th hour because that's when emotion is running really high. You're excited you're moving in and then you get slapped in the face with this doesn't appraise and the buyer-seller don't want to work together. I mean, it's awful when that happens. So I always say it's crucial to work with someone who watches and follows the market, who understands the market, can see where we're trending, where we're not going, who can explain these things to the appraiser. Because if you don't use that, I mean, a brand new, a brand new realtor can have that common knowledge. It, it just takes time to digest, Right. A seasoned person can have this and everyone in between, but there are realtors out there that don't pay attention. So um, having a, someone who's paying attention to the market conditions, where we're headed, where we're going, and could, like you just said, have those conversations with the lender to maybe not order the appraisal and put you in a position as AMC going, hey, we you might want to delay this, so we're delayed later, Right. Um, I, I always think that if we do that up front, that smart, savvy realtor is going to say, look, I'm probably going to go back to my, my, my data and only put two or three or four months if I can get enough data. They're, 
even though they know they can go back 12, they're not going to go back 12 because 12 was a very different time in our market. It's, it's like you inch back to into what you need. You know, let's start three months, let's start four months, let's do six and nine months and eight months. And so I feel like that if you, if you have someone who's just going to say, here's the last 12 months, let's get a price from this, you could have an issue on the back end. I mean, hopefully you don't, but there is a good possibility right now you could because we're, we're like, we haven't had a full year of, the, of leveling out. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're fast approaching it. I think we've we've sort of normalized or stabilized what I I call corrected from craziness. I think we're pretty far down the road with that. But to your point, the the realtor has to be experienced enough in their market to understand uh, all of the different components of the transaction and who they're speaking with. And your primary, one of your primary obligations, along with communicating with the lender, in my opinion, is communicating with the appraiser and having the knowledge to understand what it is you need to communicate. So in a market that, uh, you know, it's important to, to only try to go back 90 days if you can, but also to have the, uh, understanding and knowledge that if truly your best substitute of property sold 11 months ago, that needs to be talked about. Because number one, if it's your best, most substitute of property, it's going to be in the report or it should be. And it can be adjusted for time of sale up or down or staple, whatever that may be. But also based on our discussions today, you also understand that Fannie Mae collateral underwriter is going to pick that up too because it's within that 12 month window. Right. So giving that data up front so they can they have information to arm why um and not delay the process because it will delay a process. Up front is always better. I hate going back and having to do some sort of reconsideration of value. We don't do it very often because we are local and we are intentional. And so our clients are local lenders and we have a very customized competent panel that that uh, encourages communication and so if we're all adults in the room and we're handling this up front we don't have typically that hair on fire type of feeling at the end of a of a transaction right before something's supposed to close nobody likes that no nobody does <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are I, I left this last because I feel like I think we're going to move into this next, the market and the, what I'm about to ask. So can you tell me some of the um, challenges that the appraisers face in volatile markets and then the strategies that they employ to mitigate them? We kind of talked this loosely, but like as soon as interest rates go down, we're going to be back into volatile again. There's a lot of pent up demand. Um, there's a lot of housing on the ground now that doesn't have a contract, and there's a lot of people who want to buy that can't. So when that starts to happen, we're going to be in volatile again. And I would hope that the people who are listening today would understand how not to make your job harder later so we don't have those issues. The most important thing would be to um, put your data in the multiple listing service. It's really the place that appraisers go for that data. As everyone knows, Texas is non-disclosure. So we don't have the luxury 
uh, like I used to have way back in the state of Ohio, where it's a disclosure state. And so all of the sales data would be pretty good in the, in the county records as well. That's not the case here in Texas. So appraisers have to go to the multiple listing service. So even if you've got that pocket listing, to put it in the MLS when it closes so it can become a data piece. And also data integrity in the MLS is so crucial. Take the time to put accurate data into your MLS listing. I understand it's a, it's a marketing piece really for the seller and I get that. You have a fiduciary to the seller to, to put the best face on the property. But be accurate as much as you possibly can. Don't put that it has a hill country view when there's a couple trees in the backyard because that is a data search field that appraisers are going to look for for when they do have a hill country view. And so when that sale closes, the appraiser that's maybe a little lazier than most is going to see, oh, well, that had a hill country view. So maybe that one gets adjusted downward because of its view without them really taking the time to go and take a look at the aerial. It's so critical. You have to think about it all the way from A to Z. So in terms of volatility, it's just really incumbent upon the appraiser to just examine the contract. Is there broker representation on both sides? Was this put into the multiple listing service for true market exposure? Because when that happens, that gives credibility or at least more credibility to that negotiated contract price. And then communicating with the appraiser. That's an ongoing conversation about what is going on in that specific neighborhood, the same way we had that when we started to take off late 2020. That's true. That's true. And I'm going to piggyback on that because I think our private remarks between agents and through you have access to our MLS and you're getting those private remarks don't get utilized often enough. We have, at least in the Austin area, we have a thousand characters or more, sometimes 1500 characters that you can use to type in anything you want, right? So some of that data going back to you saying, tell me that the property was, um, renovated down to the studs in 2018 and it costs us much and whatever. I, I think that any data that's going to solidify why we're like you're, all these changes are being made or we're going further back or we're going further out in time or, or, or distance, put that data in private remarks um, because that's what an appraiser sees and I feel like it could um, slow down on, uh, eliminate the opportunity for um, that back and forth at the at the back end of it. But like you said, I feel I I feel like every piece of information should be required in MLS. If you ask me, even down to what the floors are and the ceilings. I mean, I feel like everything should be required. That way, we could be sure we have all the details when we need them. I couldn't agree more. A hundred percent. Uh, use those private remarks, even if it's something once the property is closing or closed, then, then your, you know, your obligation changes or, or is over. Go ahead and, and say, you know, th this had a little bit of a resistance with the floor plan or really, you know, predominant residential. You know, I don't know if you can go back and change fields, but certainly use the private remarks to really educate the appraiser who's going to use that as a comparable sale now 
to really understand so that that doesn't turn around and hurt you in your next transaction. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you can change those private remarks at a later time before you make it market sold. So, so definitely. Well, I've left the, I feel like the section everybody wants to know for the last, because everybody wants to know value, what affects value, improvements, and then we'll bring in uh, quality of construction and ratings here. But let's talk about solar panels, pools, and ADUs. And ADUs for our listeners is um, accessory uh, dwelling units, so large apartments, uh, second, you know, spaces to rent out for Airbnbs, a separate structure on the on the ground. So and that you walk out of your house, walk outside, walk from AC space outside to new AC space. So that's what ADU is. So do solar panels, pools, and ADUs add value? And I know it's a big maybe, you know, some do, some don't, right? But let, let's kind of talk through that a little bit. Yes. So the accessory dwelling unit has to, the, the definition of it for Fannie Mae's, it really has to function on its own. It has to be fully independently functioning. Kitchen, bathroom, living space, right? It, it's, it's not, you know, in Austin here, we have a lot of people that have detached studios, you know, which are awesome and also have contributory value, but they're not really ADUs. They're a detached studio. Maybe they've got a little half bath in there. It's being used for yoga or an office or what have you. It, it, it has contributory value. Um, pools and solar panels, again, uh, very market nuanced. There are certain areas of Texas where the solar panel is really not going to add a lot of contributory value and other areas where it most certainly does. And I think one of the things that appraisers ask, and certainly lenders and their underwriters want to know is, is that solar panel array owned or is it leased? Because it has to be owned to be considered part of that real estate. And it's my experience that oftentimes that gets settled with a payoff, you know, when the loan closes and the buyer then, of course, will take ownership of those solar panels. But that's something that you can be proactive about as agents. Hey, here's what's going on with the solar panel array and it is going to be paid off or there's no lien and it is fully owned. Or if you're a consumer and you're adding solar and you know you're going to sell your house next year, don't sell it just to add it to add the value because you're going to have to pay that off for it to be um, a part of the property. Absolutely. And so each of those items has contributory value most often. How much contributory value, again, depends on the market. There are certain instances of, you know, one of the favorite questions agents love to ask when we do our little lunch and learns is how much is a pool worth? And so, um, Obviously, that's a very nuanced and specific question. There are properties in Austin, waterfront properties, that if they don't have an in-ground pool or a negative edge pool, that can be more of a problem. And, and the dinging or the negative market impact on that property could be more than the cost to install it because of that market expectation and all the other nuances. People that are going in and buying those properties don't want a big you know, construction vehicle rolling down their, you know, half million dollar landscaping and ruining that. So um, there's all kinds of things to consider. And and then again, you have on the other end, you know, maybe an old established neighborhood, 
you know, if anyone's familiar with Austin, think about Cat Hollow, where you might have a, you know, an old school in-ground pool that, that maybe the contributory value is not that much. But you can extract that contributory value pretty easily. And you can do it in your CMA. You, you don't have to have 15 columns of items the way an appraiser does. Maybe you just pick the, the top four or five, your living area, lot size, location, maybe bedroom, bath count, and then take the item that you're wondering, what is this worth? Adjust for everything that you know, based upon your experience in the market, you're going to pretty much know, okay, the difference in bedroom bath count is going to be about this. The size is going to command about this much difference. Do all those things that you're familiar with and you do every day and isolate that last item, whether it's the solar array, pool, an ADU, and take a look at your sales that you pick. And once you've adjusted for everything you know, take a look at what the difference is because it should be pretty consistent, which is why it's good to have something that's bracketing on the upper end and on the lower end. So when everything is adjusted for, if the one that doesn't have a pool, let's just say is sitting about 50,000 low versus all the other adjusted sales prices, it's, it's telling you that that's a pretty good indication. I'm not saying that that's exactly what it's going to command in the market, but at least gives you guardrail understanding of about what the contributory value of that feature is. And it's going to be, you know, sort of extracted in that way because there's never, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that a buyer walks up to a property and says, you know what, I think I'm going to pay $125 a square foot for that pool. No, they don't. They, they, they say, I want to buy three bedroom, four bedroom, whatever house, the pool or not pool. And they then buy a different house. I'm sorry, but they um they buy they buy a house and um they don't come in with talking price per square foot. They they start they start they start using price per square foot to try to see values. I'm like, oh, it's not like that. The, the adjustments are made a little bit differently. But um, I've always said that these solar panels and pools and ADUs are like two halves. And because they're not a must-have to sustain living in the house, they there's it's a marketability issue, and it's what someone's wor- willing to pay for this extra feature that you've put in. And of the nearby houses, what are you willing to pay in this area? It really is, yes, a nuance of the market. Like I say, if you're looking at all of, of a certain area of waterfront properties, and you don't have a pool, then that's a problem. And that comes down to what is the market expectation? Because to me, I look at as this is my expectation. Going into this type of property, I'm going to expect there's going to be a pool, or I'm going to go into this neighborhood and I'm going to expect that there's going to be quartz countertops or that the flooring is going to be upgraded. You know, I'm not going to walk in and it's going to be carpet everywhere. That's an expectation. And then you have you know, that next level where it's sort of a feature, like you say, a marketability feature where, yes, it's adding value. I would prefer to have that, Um, but I'm not walking into the home expecting that this is what's going to be there. Um, And so understanding your market and, and what the expectations are of your buyers in the market really kind of sets the bar. And then you go to preferences, 
And yes, there's a return on investment for this particular market preference. And a lot of neighborhoods, that may be the pool. It might be the fact that it's got a home office, all those kinds of things. And so you all are the experts on the ground to understand this is what's driving the data. It's because they have these features and it's setting it apart. Um, Right. And then you get into really what would be like an over-improvement where you're just putting that in there as a seller and an owner of a home to enjoy. I'm living in this home. It's for my enjoyment. And I'm going to experience it that way. And when it comes time to sell, you know, it, it'll add to the market marketability of my property. But, it, you know, it may not have the same return on investment of, you know, renovating a kitchen, uh, you know, where that's expected in a market. So that, that that brings to me to this question is I get all the time. My house has these really nice hardwoods over here and this one has carpet. And mine has this, you know, nice, you know, quartz countertops and this one has formica, right? So I'm not adjusting for those items. I know you're not adjusting for those items. You're determining value for those items based on a range? I think it's pretty clear when you look at data sets, again, why it's so important for, now the pictures tell a, tell a story, of course, but why it's so important to have good data in the MLS because, again, and it depends on what kind of market we're in. If we're in a market like we were during the pandemic where people didn't care whether it had Formica counters or granite or hardwood or carpet, they needed a place to live. And they were willing to what I call that as sort of like buyer concessions. They're not going to sit down on the fact that, okay, this one has an updated kitchen and this one does not. They say to themselves, we need a place to live. We'll deal with that when we get in there. We're going to buy it. And we've seen that. And there are other market conditions where absolutely, when you look, I've, I've experienced it in the past where you can look in some of these mid-range neighborhoods, if they've replaced HVAC, roof, water heater, and the rest of the home is clean, they're commanding a higher market premium than those properties that have not had those items replaced. And again, that's in a more balanced market. Right. We're, we're not during the height of the frenzy where it's like, you know, you put a for sale sign and everyone's fighting over it because, you know, that was the state of the market. So you have to understand what kind of market we're sitting in right now. I would say right now that is a bigger factor. Buyers are not making the same types of concessions, if you will, with their wants that they were in 2021. That's true. And they. Right now, they don't have the dollars to spend on the back end that they did have before. Interest rates are higher. Insurance is higher. Property taxes are higher. <clears throat> so those homes that are um, re renovated or partially renovated and maintained are commanding a higher dollar and selling a quickly or are the only houses that are selling right now? When they're clean and you just come on in and can set your things down, move in condition, we call it. Um, absolutely. Uh, but again, it takes a real estate professional to understand the market, what kind of conditions we're in, what is a typical market buyer expecting, preferring, demanding. And it's different. 
<laughs> so let's talk about on your end. Um, let's talk about the house that has is clean, is living ready, uh, but doesn't have the highest and the best materials, but still is moving ready, versus the house that has a complete turnkey. But the uh, the first one is still comparable data. That one, that one, you're like I said, you're not using you're you're not going to the kitchen going okay they probably spent this or you're not going to the flooring you're probably spent this. In order for you to, on your end, you it's my understanding that all appraisers have a range. A value you're leaning towards the end, the higher of your range for a property that's been renovated, versus one that maybe hasn't been. And then let's talk about let's then talk about rating, because as you and I have talked about before, that rating sticks with the property, and you know can have a, a property then can you know be valued differently because of the rating for that for that deferred maintenance, right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm trying to tell the average consumer, if you're trying to put floors in, don't think your appraiser is going to come in and say, this is how much the floors cost and this is what they're going to give you back. They're going to use their range and say, I feel comfortable going to this range, higher higher lower in range based on what I can see. And this one's going to be more marketable so I can go within this this range. But they're not going to give light on value for some of those items. Well, and I think, again, it's about the appraiser interpreting interpreting the market data. I'm not setting the data points for what those different items command. That is the market telling me. So I need to look at the market. And I think we're really talking about two different things. There is condition and the yes, and there are upgrades. So it's another thing you can do in your CMA. And, you know, as appraisers, we, we really should be doing it. And, and I've been doing it and our firm in Austin's been doing it is you, you're really separating those two things out. So upgrades and finishes is to your point what you're talking about. I've put all hardwood floors in. I have, uh, you know, a fountain quartz countertops. I've got stainless appliances. My trim work is amazing. Those are all upgrades. And it's up to the appraiser to take a look at the market data to determine, okay, here's a couple that have sold over time with those types of upgrades. And this is the difference in what they're commanding versus the home that's carpet, you know, older vinyl, you know, the old school 12 inch square tile type things. So that's the data will tell you that. And oftentimes there is an adjustment made for that if the data is telling you so. Condition, like you talked about quality, a condition rating is a very specific, again, Fannie Mae defined rating. So the appraiser just can't willy nilly say, oh, well, that's good condition. The condition rating has to match the specific definition that Fannie Mae has defined. And I would encourage agents, if you have an appraisal in front of you, Take the time to really look at it because it's going to have your C for condition ratings one to, you're probably going to see one to four because once you get one being new and four being with some 
mostly cosmetic deferred maintenance. Lenders will not lend on C5 condition most times. Sometimes, but that's, that gets to be a little gray area. So most often you're going to see C1 to C4. And that is a specific data mined field by Fannie Mae where the appraiser has to report it as such. And if you review an appraisal, there's a set of definitions, UAD definitions by Fannie Mae that will be included in every report. So you can go in and educate yourself. Oh, this is what C1 means. This is C2. This is C3. This is C4. And you can educate yourself to those definitions because that is not a discretionary rating by an appraiser. It's very specific to that definition. And to your point, Jennifer, when you have some cosmetic deferred maintenance, and we're not talking about, you know, a roof pouring water into it, obviously that that would need to be repaired. But when you're talking about cosmetic deferred maintenance, maybe you walk in and the carpet is worn bare to the thread, you know, it's worn, um, you know, the kitchen is original to 1980, uh, you know, you've got some cabinet doors hanging. You've got, you know, dirty walls that really need a fresh coat of paint. You've got trim work that are wood parts of the wood siding that are rotting. So um, depending on the level of that. But for the most part, when we're talking about is livable and it's cosmetic, but, but it really is not a move in condition. And so. For your C4 ratings, if you go in and you read the definition, those are homes with that cosmetic deferred maintenance. The appraiser has to report it as such. And as a result of that, in order to extract the contributory value of of how that deferred maintenance is factoring into the opinion of value, they have to compare to other properties that have similar deferred maintenance. You're not going to use every sale down the street that has had all these items remedied. You have to go in and say, okay, lender, here's another sale that had all or very similar deferred maintenance, and this is what it sold for. You know, so you have to, uh, the, the best piece of advice would be to, if you can, and I realize it's not always possible, but if you can, as a seller and as a listing agent advising a seller, bring the property up to what we call moving condition. Have it be clean without those cosmetic deferred maintenance items, because then the appraiser can very reasonably and within compliance report it as that C3 condition, which is this is moving ready. Is it pristine and perfect? No, that's C1. That's brand new. Um, but it's C3. It's it's what we say when you can move in, set your stuff down and you don't have a long list of items that you're having to deal with. Yeah. I've seen several homes. I've done major, major renovations on the inside. And they have deferred maintenance on the outside. And then they get labeled a C4. And then their value indicates a C4, even though they've done a ton of work on the inside. And so I've always have, have told anybody I talk to, do tackle your deferred maintenance. You know, it's going to cost you a lot less to do it when it needs to be done than the value loss you're going to get when your house goes to sell. Yeah. So just understanding the difference between those two things, condition and level of upgrades. Because those ones with pools or, or re, you know, redone are going to be more marketable um, than the ones that don't have them. So <clears throat> is there anything in value or features improvements that you think we haven't covered? Um, again, 
as a as an agent in your market, um, just being the professional and understanding the condition and upgrades of not only the subject property but but the sales data. What else is listed out there? Why is that sitting longer? Um, you know, what sold and why did it sell? Um, and as a as a consumer out there, really putting your trust and doing your research into dealing with an experienced agent um, because that's where the value add comes in um, is, is understanding the differences in those uh, nuances and, and how to account for them and strategize in the market and to be a facilitator of communication so that you're communicating with the appraiser when the appraiser has a, has a space in that transaction. I agree with both of those. I've always said, told people, don't make renovations, just the hopes it's going to return dollar, dollar. Do it because you want to do it. Um, and make sure that when you do those renovations or improvements, that the buyer perception is going to drive that market value. Like it's it's not going to be a dollar for dollar on the back end, right? So that's not the way it works. Right. And it's your job as the experienced agent to, to guide them what would make sense to do. You know, maybe that fresh coat of paint is going to make all the difference in the world. Maybe the, the countertop change out. That's, that is where you come in to be the professional to say, hey, here's what the data is telling us, what the premium is for these features. And then you can decide any, all, you know, what makes sense. Yeah, it is. And it, it depends on what the, where that we are in the market, right? So, um, exactly. Um, yes, sometimes we can put lipstick on pigs, sometimes we can't. <laughs> you never know. Um, well, <clears throat> Jesse, I definitely thank you for sharing your, your insights regarding, you know, some of the um, tips that buyers can, you know, learn when they're selling their house, how they, they understand value, um, you know, how value is determined, uh, what goes into the back end of it, and how to not, um, how to have those conversations on the front end to, to eliminate unnecessary turbulence on the back end. So I appreciate everything that you've said and all your time. Um, and I thank you again for your contribution. Well, you're most welcome. It was my pleasure. And, uh, if there's any main takeaway, I would say it, it really is just sticking with your best local professionals, your realtors that are local to the area and experience with the local lenders that then in turn are working with appraisers with local knowledge as well. It's just a win-win for everybody. So if you should have an appraisal question or if you're listening to this episode, you know, reach out to your preferred realtor or your mortgage lender. Is both should be able to shed light on your question if they're not. They will get the questions answered from their appraisal management company or your appraiser or mortgage lender or your realtor should be able to guide you with those with and answer those questions for you. So I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to all of our listeners, whether you're listening to us from the comfort of your own home or on the go. I hope today's episode of Urban Connect has been informative and valuable to you. If you've enjoyed the show, I would be grateful if you consider to follow, subscribe our podcast. It helps us reach a wider audience and grow the Urban Connect community. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, feel free to connect with me directly at jennifer at urbanconnectpodcast.com. I value and appreciate your feedback and I'm always open to hearing your thoughts and suggestions. 
Until next time, I'm Jennifer Ashambo, and I look forward to connecting with you on, again on the next episode of Urban Connects.